BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, here today for Mina Kim. A political and legal earthquake rumbled through Washington last night, sending aftershocks across the nation after a leaked draft opinion showed the U.S. Supreme Court ready to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion decision. The explosive 98-page draft written by Justice Samuel Alito and tentatively signed onto by four other conservative justices was published online by Politico. The stunning turn of events has set off a torrent of reaction, with Democratic leaders from coast to coast blasting the court and demonstrators for and against abortion taking to the streets. The future of abortion, that's our topic this hour on Forum. Join us right after this. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, here today for Mina Kim. Well, leaks from the White House or members of Congress are a daily occurrence in Washington, but from the U.S. Supreme Court, pretty much unheard of, at least in modern times. So when Politico published a 98-page draft opinion last night showing a majority of justices ready to overturn Roe v. Wade and another landmark decision establishing and upholding a woman's right to an abortion, the reaction was swift and strong. The draft, written by Justice Samuel Alito and joined by four other conservative justices, said Roe and Casey were wrongly decided and that it was time for the matter to be returned to elected officials. In other words, to allow states to decide for themselves whether or not to severely restrict abortions or ban them altogether. It is by any measure an extraordinary turn of events, and we're devoting the entire hour to this, what it likely means for women's access to abortion and for the court itself, which likes to portray itself, at least, as collegial, at least by the standards of Washington, D.C. Joining me to help us understand the significance of what's happened is Michelle Goodwin. She's a chancellor's professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor Goodwin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's good to be back. Well, the court, of course, for years has been, you know, allowing states uh, to to enact tighter restrictions um, on access to abortion. And from those oral arguments in the case from uh, Mississippi and Texas, it was clear that Roe v. Wade was hanging by a thread. So what is it uh, in this draft decision that shocked so many people? 
There are a number of things that, in the opinion, are it happens to be shocking to people, and even the release of this draft opinion is also shocking to people. So one is that Roe is nearly 50 years old, and at the time in which the case was decided, the U.S. military actually required pregnant women in their service to have abortions. There is a famous case that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke to in her confirmation hearings, one in which she was the lawyer involving a captain in the military who wanted to remain pregnant. And the U.S. military required that women in the military have abortions rather than be able to continue their pregnancies and stay in the military. This was a case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg hoped would be essentially the Roe v. Wade case. But even so, <clears throat> in 1973, it was a seven to two opinion. It wasn't even close. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. And so this draft opinion um, is everything that Roe is not. It is a case in which, or at least this draft opinion, that we understand is written by Justice Alito in nine different instances says that the reasoning of the court was weak or that there was weaknesses. Um, this opinion does not uh, pay any attention to rape or incest, which is also a part of the Mississippi law, making no <clears throat> excuse me, exceptions in those uh, instances. And here the court says that what uh, the Supreme Court did years before was egregious and, you know, no matter which way you read this opinion, it is um, a horrendous attack, uh, not just on Roe v. Wade, but it's an attack on the court and prior jurisprudence. And of course, every time we have a Supreme Court nominee go before the Judiciary Committee, they're asked about precedent. Uh, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, even Samuel Alito, who apparently wrote this draft decision, they're all asked uh, about stare decisis. You know, do you respect opinions like Roe v. Wade? And they all either, you know, either uh, especially if they're Republican appointees, sort of avoid the question or talk around it. What does this draft opinion and seeing the way it's written, what does it say about the process for confirming justices? Well, there is an obfuscation that takes place, and we've seen that more recently um, in the confirmation hearings of judges who want to be on the Supreme Court. Long gone are the days where someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who could be appointed by Jimmy Carter coming from the ACLU, a civil society organization, and not having been a prosecutor or worked on behalf of big business, uh, that a person like that could be a serious nominee to the federal bench. And when you look at the records of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation hearings, which I've done, I've watched the video, I've read the transcripts, what you see is the opportunity to just speak freely and openly. And in that instance, conservative senators to ask very explicit questions about uh, racial justice, Roe v. Wade, etc. And for Justice Ginsburg to speak openly about uh, her views um, and how she interpreted the law on those in issues, and for her to have overwhelming support in her confirmation to the Supreme Court, including by conservatives. But those times have gone. And we, uh, if you review the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, of Brett Kavanaugh, of Gorsuch, of Alito, uh, what you don't hear is 
essentially what might be their honest opinions about how they would decide if the matter came before them involving Roe v. Wade. Lots of obfuscation, um, and then certainly based on this draft opinion that we all have read over the last 24 hours, um, perhaps some um, not sort of commitment to what it is that they said when they were in those confirmation hearings. We're talking about the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion, which signals that a majority of the Supreme Court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin, professor of law at UC Irvine. Her new book, by the way, uh, a recent book, I should say, is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Let's open up the phone lines because I'm sure our listeners have a lot to say about this. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or if you like, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you're old school, email It's forum at kqed.org. You mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Professor, and I seem to recall that at some point, probably before she was on the Supreme Court, she she had some concerns about the way Roe v. Wade uh, was decided. It was based basically on the uh, right to privacy. Am I am I misremembering that? No, you're remembering accurately. So there were two points that are worth being made here. So Justice Ginsburg theory was that one that should be uh, framed within equality discourse. Later on, Justice Blackman came to share that point of view. But really, this was uh, these were questions fundamentally about women's equality uh, in society under law within the frame of the Constitution. So these are not matters just about privacy and bodily autonomy, though those are relevant. It's really about being an equal citizen in the United States to be able to determine uh, how a woman will exercise reproductive freedom, much in the same way that the Supreme Court in 1942, in a case Skinner v. Oklahoma, talked about equality, uh, talked about human rights as it related to a man's reproductive freedom and future. The second thing is that Justice Ginsburg was deeply concerned about uh, states having the opportunity to continue what they were doing, which was striking down laws that uh, criminalized abortion. That was, in fact, the path moving forward. And we can understand that given just the extreme level of back alley abortions, women and girls dying um, with failed uh, abortion attempts. Uh, Half the maternity wards in places like Chicago and New York were filled with patients from botched uh, abortions. So just because abortions uh, had been criminalized or illegal in some states hadn't stopped people from seeking to terminate pregnancies. And so Justice Ginsburg thought, well, with that moving forward, uh, the ability to be able to lawfully terminate a pregnancy might be more secure by states first passing in critical mass laws that would make abortion legal or at least striking down those criminal laws and then coming before the Supreme Court that it would be wrapped up uh, altogether. But, you know, there are those who are also critical of that view as well. And we could talk about that because of the real human cost and toll. Let's remember there were parents who were coming home and seeing their daughters bleeding out in bathroom tubs, husbands who came home and found their wives on kitchen tables Mm. um, who had bled out, women being found in motel rooms dead on top of sheets and towels um, after self-attempted abortions. And in that backdrop of knowing that 
legal abortions are quite safe. The World Health Organization compares an abortion to the safety of a penicillin shot. And then other data that's important, which is that a woman is 14 times more likely to die in the United States by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. When you put all of that together, then for so many, um, they believe that Roe v. Wade was the right decision. And I think that they are absolutely right. It yeah. was the right decision. All right. We're going to open up the phone lines again. The number to call, 866-733-6786. And let's go to Martinez. And um, our first caller is uh, Scott. Welcome. Yeah. Hi. Thanks. Um, yeah, I was telling your screener that I don't know if this is like too basic or broad or kind of a genesis kind of question, but I, I'm just having and sorry, I'm like a little, you know, emotional about the whole thing, but I'm, sure. I'm just having a hard time wondering how and why like a private healthcare decision on the part of like private citizens even became like a legislative issue, like how that's anyone's business and certainly a political issue. And like, I mean, did Greg Abbott just like wake up one morning and decide he was going to sick private citizens on abortion? Yeah. yeah. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. Michelle Goodwin, um, obviously, uh, I mean, from a, from the point of view of conservatives, this is a big victory, is it not? I mean, this is the kind of thing they have been planning for decades and being frustrated when people like Anthony Kennedy or Sandra Day O'Connor uh, upheld the right to abortion. So from their point of view, this is really what they've, they've been trying to do. Um, we're going to take a break, unfortunately, and we'll come back and, and talk about that, sort of the history of how abortion rights have made their way through the Supreme Court, uh, disappointing at time conservatives, and now with this draft opinion, it looks like they're on the precipice of getting what they have wanted for for decades now. We're going to continue the conversation with Professor Michelle Goodwin from UC Irvine's School of Law, and we'd love to have you join us. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here for Mina Kim this hour. Much more to come. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. We're talking about the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion, which signals that a majority of the court is prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm uh, joined this hour by Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine's School of Law. Her recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Um, and Professor Goodwin, uh, so much to unpack here. Um, I do want to give out the phone number again, 866-733-6786. But we haven't talked about or emphasized enough, perhaps, that this is a draft opinion. What is the significance of that and the significance that Alito appears to be the one uh, who's written this and that it's not clear where Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts is in all this? Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm so happy that we are in a <laughs> we conversation about this, right? That we have an hour. Well, the first is to pick up really briefly on the callers, our last callers' uh, questions about the history here. And so very quickly is that in Roe v. Wade, what Justice Blackman emphasized is that abortions hadn't been originally criminalized in the United States and they hadn't been. Um, indigenous people practice all matter of reproductive health care pilgrims, uh, practiced abortion as well as pregnancy and delivery, all of that. It really becomes around the time of the Civil War where abortion becomes a political tool. And there are other political tools that are being used in that time, anti-immigration platforms, et cetera. But it's at that time in which a, a combination of doctors who are looking to basically monopolize the space for themselves, push out midwives, um, decide that abortion is the tool to use. And they begin writing these pamphlets uh, that they described as books where uh, they speak in really um, horrific terms about midwives and nearly 100% of women's reproductive health care had always been done by women, which wouldn't be a surprise, right? We know that a thousand years ago, men with stethoscopes and lab coats were not roaming around uh, Europe or Asia or Africa doing reproductive health care. They weren't. It was women. But at the time in which obstetrics and gynecology become a profession that men harness for themselves, they seek, one, to push out these midwives. Two, they say, well, these midwives are engaged in an immoral activity, which is abortion. And three, because we see the light of the Civil War um, beaming. They say that it's an urgent time for white women to use their loins and to spread their loins. This is their terminology, east, west, north, and south. And they begin to wrap anti-abortion um, movement, if you will, um, embedded with basically white supremacy. And it's a, it's a part of a legacy of anti-abortion movement that really happens to not be talked about. It was expedient using this trope around the time of the Civil War uh, to use race as this dividing line, but it was expedient and it worked. Today, as you've asked us questions about the Chief Justice and what does it mean that Justice Alito is writing the opinion? Well, it means that this was likely assigned by Justice Thomas. It means that possibly uh, the Chief Justice will be siding with liberals on the court. That would not be surprising given the last few years because the Chief Justice cares about the rule of law and he cares about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And there's been a lot of doubt, not just amongst people who are 
advocates of abortion rights, but Americans generally have said that they've lost confidence in the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has the lowest favorability ratings that it's had in 50 years. And so there has been a lot that the Chief Justice has had to contend with, even beyond abortion rights, with questions about ethics on the court, including the ethics of justices who serve on the court. And in recent years, the Chief Justice has sided with liberals. So the the last case that Justice Ginsburg sat on involving abortion was a case involving that was called June Medical v. Rousseau, involving a law out of Louisiana where basically the state was challenging the Supreme Court on the Supreme Court's own grounds and ruling uh, just a couple years before. And it's notable that the Chief Justice sided with the liberals and he made clear why. And he said, because precedent must have some meaning. Mm, Yeah. Well, and he did release a statement this morning, and there was some question initially whether this was authentic, and uh, the Supreme Court has confirmed. And uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts saying uh, in his statement, uh, calling it a betrayal of the confidences of the court uh, intended to undermine the integrity of our operations and saying that he has directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. And I guess we shouldn't make any assumptions. I mean, you might your immediate reaction might be, oh, well, it was a clerk working for Sotomayor or Breyer um, or Kagan. But that's, you can't really no. say that for sure, can you? No, not at all. This could have come from anywhere in the court. And again, to keep in mind that there have been questions that precede this about ethics on the court and the fact that uh, the justices are not held to the same ethical standards as other judges on state courts or lawyers in the practice of law. We have no idea where this came from at all, whether it was a clerk, whether it was someone working in uh, as an administrator at the court uh, from one of the chambers. We, we just have absolutely no idea where this came from. And I think it would be very dangerous uh, to assign a, a value to this by saying that it could have been from one of the offices of liberals on the court. We just don't know that, and Mm. it would be irresponsible to imply that. We have a number of comments from listeners. Uh, Kim writes, Chief Justice Roberts just called the league a betrayal, but justices who lied about their positions on Roe v. Wade to get confirmed is a betrayal. Overturning a 50-year legal precedent is a betrayal. Going against the will of 80% of Americans is a betrayal. Forcing the beliefs of a religious minority on all women is a betrayal and undemocratic. The only way to change this is at the ballot box in November. And Trish writes, in light of the impending SCOTUS decision on abortion rights, individual states will need to secure these rights for their citizens. Women in states that do not protect this right will be forced to travel or risk their health and medical licenses of any practitioners willing to help them unless there is a safe, simple, do-it-yourself option that can be made available via mail order or delivery. Is this option an actual possibility? And Professor Goodwin, uh, you know, there certainly a lot has changed uh, in terms of the safety of abortions and technology and medical, medically induced uh, abortions since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was issued. But what about that? I mean, to what extent are we on perhaps the verge at some point of making uh, an abortion procedure by a doctor or a nurse practitioner even uh, necessary? 
Well, that's a very good question because in Europe, uh, abortion pills have been used for decades, for 40 years. And so in many ways, the United States is catching up and abortions are very safe, uh, surgical and also those administered uh, by medication. The World Health Organization compares the safety of an abortion to a penicillin shot. And in 2016, in the case Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead, a case where the opinion was written by Justice Breyer, uh, it's really a, quite a brilliant opinion because of the deep empirical information in it. And there, um, for those who didn't know it before, um, as he puts up evidence that, you know, a surgical abortion is even safer than a colonoscopy. So we're talking about an incredibly safe procedure. And on the other hand, what we know is that carrying a pregnancy to term, a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. And I think we really need to let mm. that sit yeah. in. The court knows this. A woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term in the United States than by having an abortion. And it's within that context that we have to read these state laws and also this draft opinion. Talking about the medical implications, that's a perfect time to bring in our next caller, Dr. Jennifer Conti uh, from Stanford, an OBGYN, an abortion provider. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I first just want to echo everything that she's saying. It, I often quote that 14 times number. It's it's absolutely accurate, and we don't consent people for desired pregnancies, interestingly. But I, I wanted to talk about how bans on abortion specifically isolate and um, are meant to control and coerce communities like uh, black people, brown people, indigenous people, people of color, and people who are essentially trapped within systemic poverty. I, as an abortion provider in California, have already cared for women seeking abortion care coming to me from Texas, where we know this is an issue right now, um, probably most notably in the news. And this is just the beginning, but this is a person who can who can reach me and has the resources to reach me. We We know that there will be thousands, millions of women who won't be able to and will be forced to carry their pregnancies to term and face this 14 times higher risk of death. Hmm. Well, and not having an exception in the case of incest or rape or even to save the life of the mother would be extraordinary. I mean, uh, unconscionable, really, wouldn't it? It's absolutely unconscionable. And I think these laws sometimes pretend that they account for those um, issues or situations, but they don't because it isn't about protecting pregnant people. It's about controlling women's bodies and, and making it so that they are not as um, equal uh, in the workforce, in um, ed the education atmosphere. It, it's all about control. And, and of course, uh, Michelle Goodwin, states like California are already uh, trying to help women in states like Texas and many other states that will soon be living in places where abortion is outlawed if this draft opinion becomes the law of the land, which seems likely to be. Um, you know, to what extent can that help the women that you know Dr. Conti is referring to, especially low-income women, women of color who just simply don't have the resources to travel themselves? So this is an era of a new Jane Crow that we're seeing today, such that states like California, Colorado, New York are becoming sanctuaries. We can compare this to states that said, you know, when you come here, you will be free if you are black. Uh, states like Pennsylvania and, and otherwise. 
And so it's great that we have states and legislatures within those states that are looking to do that uh, to preserve equality, dignity, justice for people who want to be able to be expressive however they choose to be with their pregnancies. And the state of California will protect people who want to carry pregnancies to term um, because that's an important value. At the same time, protect people whose interests are to terminate a pregnancy. But let's be clear, when we're talking about a new Jane Crow, then there are going to be many other ways in which these states will seek to police people's bodies when they're leaving those states, both criminally and then also civilly. And we saw that in the era of Jim Crow too. Um, during the period of Jim Crow, there were states that tried very hard to make sure that black people, <clears throat> excuse me, couldn't leave those states. Um, there were laws that were being enacted that made it dangerous and, in fact, illegal for interracial couples to be traveling um, on interstate highways, right? So what we're going to see is this is not the end of it, but rather a proliferation of other kinds of laws that help to buttress the efforts that states are making. And it's absolutely right and correct, sadly so, that these are power plays. This is not about protecting dignity. This is not about care for embryos or fetuses, which are not even recognized in the Constitution, by the way. Uh, but these are really uh, sharpened tools um, that seek to chill the freedom um, and the belief that people can be free um, and in the United States with regard to their reproductive rights. Dr. Connie, thanks so much for checking in. Appreciate that. Uh, let's go to some listener comments here. Celeste writes, I believe abortions are not right, and my moral compass says it's wrong to terminate a pregnancy, but I think there should be some abortion rights, but no abortion past three months or late-term abortion, or if there's a good reason for the pregnant person's health or psychological reasons. So politically, I agree, but overall... This issue is too political, and it shouldn't be that way. It is a health issue. And Grace writes, if we pass the Equal Rights Amendment, would that secure abortion rights? And uh, Professor Goodman, I believe we're one state short of enacting that. Uh, there was some thought that Virginia might become the final state, but that is not happening now. Um, what can Congress do? This is going to be a big issue in the midterm elections. Democrats, I got a fundraising. I saw fundraising pitches online last night, Twitter, everywhere. Democrats raising money. Republicans may also try. What can a Democratic majority, if it's maintained in the House and the Senate uh, with, a, with a Democratic president, what can they do uh, that's politically feasible and could make a difference? So there are a couple of things. One, we've seen 38 states ratify the Equal Rights uh, Amendment. And during the Trump administration, there was a thumb put on the scale by the president um, in essentially making it very difficult for the archivist to then do the next bit, which would be to file then um, the appropriate administrative work in order for the ERA to be fully ratified and part of the United States Constitution. There is legislation, the Women's Health Protection Act, which has made its way through the House of Representatives. It is uh, legislation that would seek to codify Roe v. Wade, but it has not been able to make its way through the United States Senate. And it's really sad and alarming because in the, in the 1970s in the United States, I think such legislation would have been able to easily get through the United States uh, Senate. But I think that there was this understanding that it just simply 
was not necessary because of Roe v. Wade. And so here we are in 2020 and now turning to Congress to do the work to protect reproductive rights. Let me give out the phone number again if you'd like to join us. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email if you prefer forum at kqed.org. Talking with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Bio technology and global health policy at UC Irvine's School of Law. Um, Let's go uh, back to the phones. And how about Peter in Oakland? You're next. Oh, hi. Um, My question is, uh, this is sort of off your current topic, but will there be any negative consequences for the leaker? Yeah. Well, Professor Goodman, that and what consequences for the court. I mean, obviously, I can't imagine what these the justices thought and said and felt when this news broke last night. Uh, what, what are the implications for that? Well, it's alarming across a number of areas for the court. And so I think that we should talk about this within the context of process and also the substance of what this represents. So it's unheard of, you know, it's, it's not something that we've seen before. And it, you know, it, it represents um, a kind of weakness, if you will, of the court itself and where the, the court actually happens to be a very vulnerable institution of our democracy. But then substantively, the uh, draft ruling itself also says something that is deeply alarming and other opinions that have come before um, that have come out of this court. I mean, we've seen within the last 10 years, the dismantling of voting rights by this court. That is equally alarming. And in fact, it's the dismantling of voting rights that actually makes it somewhat alarming when Justice Alito in this draft opinion says, well, take it to the polls. Well, how can people take it to the polls when there has been the gerrymandering of the vote, when there has been voter suppression, um, when the very legislation that sought to protect the right of the most vulnerable people in the United States to be vote has been gutted by this United States Supreme Court. Telling people to take it to the polls um, seems what some might describe as somewhat toothless uh, in terms of what is described in this particular um, opinion. And so we don't know what will happen if the leaker is found what the consequences will be. But I can imagine that this is deeply alarming for all of the members of the Supreme Court community, not just the justices, but also their clerks and also the people who work at the court. I want to give out the phone number and uh, I'd love to have you join us. What are your reactions to the news of this draft opinion? Are you surprised that Roe might be overturned? How are you responding? Are you concerned that the draft opinion will affect other rights, like the right to same-sex marriage, for example? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you, you can email us as well. We'll answer that. We'll take a look at that. Forum at KQED.org. Scott Schaefer here this hour for me and Kim talking with Michelle Goodwin from UC Irvine School of Law about the stunning news last night of a draft opinion uh, making it appear that a majority of justices at the Supreme Court are prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade and the Casey decision as well. Huge news. We're going to continue talking about it this hour. Join us.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking, of course, about the draft opinion leaked to Politico last night on the abortion cases uh, that the Supreme Court is considering this term and uh, apparently a majority of justices ready to overturn Roe v. Wade in the Casey decision. Joining us now, State Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. She's a Democrat who represents the 15th Assembly District, Oakland, Berkeley, other parts of the East Bay. Assemblywoman Wicks, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Um, what you, you have spoken in such personal terms about uh, your own uh, health and uh, a miscarriage that required a kind of medical abortion procedure. What are your thoughts as you see what appears to be the end of Roe v. Wade and a federal uh, guarantee, a constitutional guarantee to access to procedures like that? Well, I have a, a lot of thoughts on it. You know, as someone who has needed um, abortion care in my life, um, and as you mentioned, I talked about this just this past year. Um, I had a miscarriage. I didn't know I was pregnant and I needed an emergency uh, abortion procedure and was able to get that, obviously, here in California very quickly. And that was the week that, um, you know, the law, the law in Texas had passed. Um, it became very real to me in that situation why we need this type of care. Um, you know, and the fact that those in Texas wouldn't be able to access that kind of care as easily um, you know, really compelled me to speak out on it. And then hearing um, this decision that, you know, again, may or may not be legitimate, but certainly the shrillness of this decision and how it was written was really like a, a, um, a gut punch. Um, I felt angry. Um, it, it, I was seething with anger. I almost got on a red eye to go to Washington, D.C. last night to be in front of the Supreme Court this morning because I was so frustrated at the fact that the Republican Party has really made this issue a defining part of their platform. And, you know, with the stroke of a pen, you know, the Supreme Court has the ability to essentially ban, outright ban or severely limit access to abortion care in about half the country almost overnight. Um, and, and, and additionally, I'm the mom of two girls, you know, who I think about their future and their life. And obviously here in California, we are going to do everything we can to ensure that they have access to the care that they may need when they are older. Um, but for so many other women across this country, for so many other people, that right is going to be eroded away, and it is absolutely heartbreaking and frustrating. And um, you know, from from my perspective as a state legislator, um, I view it as my my moral obligation to continue to fight to ensure 
that we all have the access that we need. Last night, as this was unfolding, uh, the top three Democrats in Sacramento, the governor, Governor Newsom, Speaker Rendon, and Senate President Pro Tem Atkins released a joint statement saying that they were going to push for a constitutional amendment on the November ballot to enshrine the right to an abortion in California. I mean, that may be politically important, but what impact do you see something like that having, practically speaking? I think it's I think it's incumbent upon all of us right now to speak out on this issue and just tell the rest of the world that California is a reproductive freedom state for everyone. You know, and what we have to anticipate now is with half the nation potentially not having access to abortion, many of those people will come to California to seek that care. Um, In places like California, places like New York, other places where we believe this will be protected, it's critical, you know, and it does feel like we're in these sort of cultural wars of years past. You know, and it, it, it felt like from my perspective growing up that my my grandmother and my mother had fought for these rights so that I wouldn't have to. And here we are. Right. So I have to fight for these rights for my children. Um, and so I applaud um, the governor and the Senate pro tem and the speaker, um, their robust and quick reaction on this. And I think it's absolutely critical and, and to have something on the ballot so voters can exercise their own voice in this, I think is absolutely imperative. I know this is a very busy morning for you, Assemblywoman Wicks. Appreciate your joining us. Before I let you go, uh, the state has an enormous surplus, $68 billion or so. What would you like to see or what's needed in terms of helping women outside California uh, get here to get the kind of care they need? You know, so we estimate it'll be around 1.4 million women who may be coming to California for to seek care. And that's what we have to prepare for, right? And so ensuring that that our providers are prepared for that, um, that we have the, the resources available to ensure that we can provide that kind of care, I think is absolutely um, imperative. And, you know, there's a slate of bills um, that many of my colleagues in the Women's Caucus and myself included are doing uh, to ensure just that. So we are, we are prepared. Uh, we expected this to come down. Um, and so we want to make sure that the rest of the world and the rest of the country knows that um, we are always going to be here to, pro- to provide safe and legal abortion for anyone who needs it. All right. Oakland State Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, thank you so much for joining us on a very busy morning for you. Thank you. And we're going to continue our conversation and uh, the number to call if you want to join us, 866-733-6786. My guest is Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine's School of Law. And let's go back to the phones and let's see, how about uh, Lauren in Napa? You're next. Hi, this is Lauren Piercy. I, my question is about the children who will be brought into potentially terrible situations and how our foster care system will cope. These are women who would be forced to have uh, to have a baby that they uh, would rather not have? Yes. Uh, go right ahead. What's your, do you have a specific, a specific concern or generally, you're generally concerned? Um, let me ask you, Professor Goodman, I think we have a, we're having a little trouble sure. with that line. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of uh, consequences for uh, a ban on abortion, uh, especially uh, in, in, as the caller suggested, uh, you know, children could be born into, a, you know, this could, there could be incest involved or who knows mm-hmm. what. Um, how do we cope with that? How will they cope with that? What can, what can be done to help them? Well, that's the real tragedy of the anti-abortion legislation that we see taking shape in places like Texas and Mississippi. The 
Mississippi law that the Supreme Court is considering in this Dobbs case bans abortion at 15 weeks and makes no exceptions for rape or incest. And then Mississippi asks, well, you know, not only uphold our law, but how about getting rid of Roe v. Wade? And it seems that the Supreme Court has been willing to take that on. And when you read this draft opinion, um, Justice Alito pays no attention to rape or incest. He doesn't even mention it. And yet it is a very prominent part of the law. And so it is very disconcerting in terms of how people's lives will be affected, how the girls, how the lives of girls will be affected after an opinion like this. And I think that what the caller was suggesting is that for people who are not prepared to be pregnant, don't want pregnancies, that there is some likelihood that parenting may become difficult for them, that children may end up in foster care. And we also know through longitudinal studies that life for children who uh, age out of foster care can be terrible. Less than 6% of the kids who age out of foster care even get to college. And more than half of the boys who age out of foster care will have experienced incarceration before the age of 18. And more than a quarter of the girls will experience an unwanted and unintended pregnancy. So this opinion has many the potential of this opinion, if this is what we essentially will see in late May or June, has significant consequences for children in this nation, uh, for women, and also for girls. Lots of listener comments here. Samantha writes, what can I do as a college student to make a difference besides voting? What good would protesting do to make a difference? This is a deeply unsettling decision, and I very much appreciate Forum talking about it. Professor, you have a lot of young women and men in your classes, I'm sure, uh, who care very deeply about this. What will you be telling them? Well, constitutional principles matter. And famously, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was known as a dissenter. And there's something to be said about what's called jurisprudence in exile. That is to say that dissents do matter. Uh, when one looks at even the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, a case that shortly after slavery reduced black people to second class citizenship uh, within the eyes of the law, there was a famous dissent by Justice Harlan that served as the blueprint later for what we saw in Brown v. Board of Education. And so it's important not to give up hope. It's important to be studious about the law and to understand the law. And in that way, we can understand also the shortcomings, some of the very egregious shortcomings in this draft opinion, which we see circulated by uh, Justice Alito. There are a number of gaps and weaknesses uh, within this draft opinion that pays very little attention to empirical data, pays very little attention to health. Uh, he actually cites uh, from those who actually supported and wrote about coverture as, as being legal, that is women held as property of their husbands. Um, and then also um, citing treatises where uh, in those treatises, marital rape was legal. So it, there are aspects of the opinion that are alarming, but if we're good students of the law, then we can read this opinion with a far more critical eye. Let me uh, read some other comments here. Uh, Mike writes, the leak is just the continuation of the dismantling of norms begun by Donald Trump. Some would say that began earlier. When the institution being destroyed benefits Republicans, conservatives look the other way. Now the shoe is on the other foot. Um, another listener writes, U.S. Senator uh, Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, and a critical vote on the judicial 
uh, committee said this morning that if the opinion was accurate, it would be inconsistent with what Kavanaugh and Gorsuch told her in her office and at that hearing. How can politicians like her be so naive or just plain cynical? I'm so angry that our reproductive rights are in the hands of politicians like her. Um, we, it's hard to know, of course, what the impact like this is going to, of this is going to be. But, Professor, we should say that draft opinions, it is normal and typical for draft opinions on all kinds of cases to be circulated, right, among the justices. That's right. And so this is what's, what's unusual is that it was released, that it was leaked. Um, what impact could that have, do you think, on the final opinion? Well, you are absolutely right that the opinions go through drafts and during the drafting process and also uh, the process of judges, uh, the justices coming together to discuss the drafts, uh, that opinions change, uh, that opinions soften over time, and that people who might have been in the majority uh, then move to the dissent, that the dissent can become the majority. And so there is some level, though not a lot, but there's some level of fluidity that takes place. I think what's concerning for people who are paying attention to this and on that side of the leak, what this might mean just in terms of how opinions are shared and the kind of security, if you will, that might harness around, you know, the drafting of opinions. You want for judges and the justices to be able to think freely and openly and be expressive to their colleagues, because that is also the way in which concurrences and dissents get shaped by what it is that those who disagree are able to see and how they're able to counter and build strong arguments. So that's all important to this process. And, and I can understand your callers that are reaching out now saying that they're yeah. deeply alarmed and that they're saddened by this draft opinion. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in Fermina Kim. We're in the middle of a very brief pop-up pledge drive to close the gap from the $400,000 shortfall we had in March. So please contribute to kqed.org slash donate because we'll wrap up this effort tomorrow night. That's kqed.org slash donate. And let's go back to the phones and let's go to, how about, um, yeah, let's see. I don't know if that was, uh, let's do Dan. Dan in Santa Clara, welcome. Yes, good day. I'm calling to offer uh, a correction. I believe this is something that was said that might be an error, specifically the need for California to pass either a constitutional amendment or uh, pass a law through the legislature guaranteeing and enshrining the right to abortion access. The reason for this is if and when the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the nature of the, the writing of the memo, if that's what passes, will kick it down to the states. And depending upon the protections that are afforded by the states, any law that perhaps gets nationally passed after that, perhaps through Congress or through Supreme Court rulings, can limit right to abortion access in our state. Yeah, uh, so it's prof- a necessary prophylactic measure. Yeah, Professor Goodman, do you want? I, I think what uh, Assemblywoman uh, Wicks was saying earlier that uh, even if it's just sort of a statement of whatever, however you want to describe it, solidarity or speaking out uh, to remind people that California is pro-choice. I mean, what what are your thoughts uh, about the caller and whether something like that is needed here in California? Well, in California, there 
already our state constitutional protections for reproductive privacy and also legislative protections in California preserving and promoting reproductive privacy. So those protections exist. The other thing is that states are able to shape legislation that hasn't already been spoken to uh, by Congress or the court and states are able to provide more uh, support uh, than what might be uh, legislated by Congress or placed into law by courts. And so that's important to note here that even if we find that the Supreme Court takes on Mississippi's invitation to do away with Roe v. Wade altogether, that is not for the for the country. So states like California can continue to do what it is, uh, what it desires to do, such as to be a sanctuary state, a, a, f a place of freedom and harbor for those who want to be able to have reproductive freedom, whether it means continuing a pregnancy to term with dignity, terminating a pre pregnancy, getting access to contraception, all of those things California will be able to do and any other state as well. So people who are in purple states who really want to make sure that the right to um, reproductive freedom is ensconced in their state. Well, they can vote out legislators uh, that disagree with that and vote in legislators that will support that uh, right. Some more listener comments now. Elizabeth tweets, the news is stunning but cannot be surprising to anyone paying the least attention. Of course, all rights for anyone who is not white or male are at risk. We have been watching the war on women, the white supremacist war. Our lives are at stake. Professor Goodwin, um, there was a passage in this decision, this draft opinion, which basically said, look, this is only about abortion. Uh, you shouldn't infer that what we're saying here today has anything to do with any other issues. Uh, of course, that's cold comfort uh, to people who have seen uh, precedent ignored on any number of issues. But what do you make of that? And what rights, what previous rulings do you think could be vulnerable uh, given the way this decision, this draft decision was written? Yeah, I don't think that we can take those guardrails seriously. Um, and we've seen that also before from Justice Alito. It's kind of his jurisprudence playbook. Uh, that's the same kind of guardrail framing that he used in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby to say that in uh, gutting part of the Affordable Care Act as it related to private for-profit corporations that didn't want to pay for contraception, that it related only to their very specific religious views, which were oppositional to contraception, uh, that it wouldn't apply um, elsewhere. Uh, that is cold comfort and a bit toothless, perhaps. Um, again, this is a draft opinion. We don't know what the final opinion uh, will be. Yeah. But I will say that this is on a spectrum where we have seen attacks on our democracy and the rule of law. And it has to be considered within a spectrum that includes attacks on voting rights. Uh, now this and after this, what this will mean in terms of LGBTQ equality. We already see some yeah. states gearing up um, in that direction, including the state of Texas. I need to jump in uh, because we have one more guest and we're very much at the end of the hour. But Jessica, Pinckney, who is executive director uh, of uh, Access Reproductive Justice, is on the line. And I apologize for the very shortness of time, but how is your organization responding to this? Hi, thanks for having it's me. Really quickly, um, I'm, and I apologize again. No, absolutely. I mean, we're very unsurprised by the draft opinion that was leaked by the Supreme Court, but of course, still angry, shocked, and dismayed that we're even debating bodily autonomy still. But Access Reproductive Justice provides support to anyone seeking care uh, in the state yeah. of California 
and we'll continue to do that. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. We are going to, of course, be continuing covering this, as will NPR, for the rest of today. And tomorrow, I want to thank all of our guests and callers, especially Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine. Her latest book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.